This is the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Anfield. Hello and welcome to the Blood Red podcast for the fourth instalment of our treble winners series here on the Blood Red channel. I'm Guy Clark. Alongside me at Oracle, our fount of knowledge, resident red, Dan K. We are here, of course, to look back on November 2020 years ago as Liverpool's cup season really did begin to take shape. League Cup games, UEFA Cup games and a few Premier League defeats, unfortunately, will have to scatter in there. Dan, it feels a while since we did one of these. Last guest was Sander Westerveld, which, unfortunately, I know you sort of couldn't make, but uh, it was compelling listening to him, and I suppose it's quite fitting that we uh, we start this November look back, and November began and finished with League Cup wins and the only two games of the marathon season that Sander didn't appear in. That's right. I think these two games are when uh, Peggy Arfexad got the chance to make a, a couple of rare handfuls of, of appearances. And um, you know, the, 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 it's very easy to kind of sneer and look down on the League Cup, but particularly remembering where Liverpool were at this time and how, you know, how important the League Cup proved to be to Liverpool's season. You know, it, this month, I think, in many ways sums up the topsy-turvy nature of the whole campaign. But I think even though they were, it was almost like one step forward, one step back a lot of the time, the fact that they kept making progress in the cup competitions and obviously because the League Cup comes so early, getting a, getting a, a, piece, of tr- a piece of silverware in the cabinet, which in 2001 was the first one for six years, long time for a club like Liverpool, I think it proved really fundamental to everything that went on to follow in terms of giving them that belief and, and self-confidence that in spite of the fact that they kept, they kept having dodgy results right the way through the season, they were making progress, and and the cup, you know, the cup competitions, and particularly the League Cup, initially was tangible proof of that. And it was also a month, and I suppose you mentioned the League Cup there as well. Robbie Fowler, of course, scored in the final, and it was a month really. Obviously, he'd had the injury hit uh, start to the season, injured in in the preseason friendlies, and this is sort of a, a month where he begins to sort of reemerge. Of course, he scores against Chelsea, the extra time winner, and scores a hat trick in the eight nil win over Stoke City it was as you say I suppose that that League Cup it, it was sort of the beginning of that successful campaign really beginning to to bear fruit yeah well I mean I, I didn't go to Stoke but I, but I do definitely remember going to the Chelsea game at the start of November and I, I've just checked and I, I was right in my head that that the the extra time winner that Fowler scores at the typical kind of sharp finish on the turn at the Anfield Road end that was his first goal of the whole season I think he'd missed the penalty in the first in the first leg against Liberec a few weeks before, obviously he's not played that many games at that point. But uh, but this Chelsea wasn't the Chelsea of even three or four years even three three or four years later with Abramovich and so on. But they were starting to become a bit more of a force, a bit more of a threat. And I do remember, even though it you know it was, a, it was quite a cold night and the ground was half empty, it was a great it was a great celebration when Fowler's goal went in. I remember there were you know, some great pictures of him and Patrick Berger running away towards the main stand to celebrate. Because you know, with so many games coming thick and fast, I think everybody kind of groaned inwardly and probably outwardly, certainly in the stands when when the match went to extra time. And there was very much a feeling, well, if it's going to extra time, we best flip and win. And when Fowler bang that, you know, when Fowler popped that one in, obviously that that's that got Liverpool through to the next round. He, he did score. He, he scored as well in, in the the defeat to Tottenham midway through the month, which which was another game I went to at White Hart. I think he put Liverpool in front that day. And Spurs fought back to win, which is frustrating. But uh, the the eight nil at um, at Stoke, like I say, I didn't go, but I do remember 
Uh, I remember think probably listening on the radio at the time and then watching the highlights later. Even though obviously it ended up being a an absolute rout, probably one of Liverpool's biggest ever away wins. And Peggy FX had got to keep a clean sheet. I'm sure there was an incident in the first minute when it was still nil nil, when I think he, someone someone charged him down and the ball, one of those kind of ricochet ones, and they hit the post and came out again. And it was you know on on such moments like that can can matches and also seasons be decided. You know, if Stoke had gone in front that night, who knows, Liverpool could have been on the receiving end of an upset and the whole series of events afterwards may have panned out differently, but they didn't. The ball hit the post and came out again. Robbie got a hat-trick and, and ended up having a good season. I mean, he ended up with, what, 17 goals, obviously including the two crucial ones on the final day of the season at Charlton. But it was a, a, a bittersweet season to some degree for him and, and in many ways, you know, the seeds were sown for his departure, which was to happen later that same calendar year in the November, which um, you know, I'll always remember arriving in Cardiff for the FA Cup final and seeing the pictures going round of you know the team had been announced and he wasn't in it. And you just knew, unfortunately, you know the writing was on the wall because Gerard Houllier wanted to go a different way with Michael Owen and, and Emil Heskey and looking at the success he had, it's hard to fault him for it. But there'll always be that slight feeling of sadness that, you know, I, I remember when Robbie left, it was the same day that George Harrison died. And uh, it was that was a really, really sad day for the city. No, certainly. And you're mentioning there Robbie Fowler. And of course, it was sort of, as you mentioned, sort of the, the seeds were being sown for his departure and the end of his time with Liverpool. But it, and I suppose we can do it with nostalgia and looking back on it. He was one of sort of three fantastic forwards for obviously not only Liverpool, but that the England could have had the option to uh, choose from and obviously take to what would have been the, the World Cup coming up in 2002, albeit a little bit down the track from from this moment in time. But I suppose we talk now and very much in the present with Diogo Jota coming in that there's now four for those three forward positions. It was competition for places like Liverpool hadn't experienced for a long time with sort of the, those genuine three players in the forward options who all really wanted to be starting every minute and playing every minute of every game. Absolutely. And, you know, given the nature of the season, Liverpool needed at least three of them, or arguably four. I mean, the, the Liverpool played 60... 63 matches that uh, this season, which I can't imagine. You know, there's been too many campaigns when they when they played more than that. Rotation was starting to become a, a bit of a thing, um, but it, it still wasn't really um, anything like as kind of as as as, uh, as commonplace as what it is now. Uh, and you know, to some degree, Liverpool were really quite fortunate because, like well, mentioned, Robbie had an injury at the start of the campaign, but. Um, I don't remember Owen or Heskey missing too many matches. And Robbie, you know, once he was fit, he, half the time he was left out, he wasn't always available. I, I, I would be interested to know, I mean, I've, I've never looked down the stats, how many, if any, games the three of them started together. Obviously, we're used to, you know, Liverpool having a front three now, but things were still very much more, not totally 4-4-2, but the idea of playing three forwards was nowhere near as... as um, as, as as widely adopted a tactic as as what it is now, particularly I suppose for a manager like Gerard Houllier, who you know with the greatest respect and admiration for the wonderful times he gave us, was you know a more conservative type of manager who would always make sure that you know everything was was locked tight at the back and um, you know had maybe a more functional way of playing than maybe your more expansive managers nowadays like a Klopp or a Guardiola and so on. So 
it's part of the manager's art, isn't it? I suppose to, to somehow keep, particularly the big club like Liverpool with a big squad, to keep all those players as happy as you can. And you're never going to be able to keep them 100% happy. I mean, I, I, I do remember, Owen never started the League Cup final, did he, against Birmingham? And I do remember reading something that he was a bit irked at that. At the end of the day, or particularly Owen and Farley, who obviously were established, Heskey, you know, hadn't been at the club 12 months at this point. So, but he was the big man up front. He was the focal point of the attack. And we know that the way Julia liked to play, he was, he was always going to play more often than not. So it tended to be Owen, Heskey, Heskey and one of Fowler or Owen. So unfortunately, it, it was always going to come to a head. And I think the reality of it was, Robbie was always going to be the fall guy in this uh, love triangle. Yes, certainly. And uh, yeah, as you say, Michael Owen didn't even get on the pitch in the the League Cup final. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. In November the 1st, league game being the 4th of November, away at Ellen Road against Leeds United. Of course, the Reds will be uh, heading back to Ellen Road for a league fixture uh, this season. Hopefully, maybe fans may well be back in time for that. Who knows? But 4-3 against Leeds United. And it was one of the, or is still one of the classic Premier League games, albeit Reds fans will want to scrub it from the memory. It was a classic game, wasn't it? I mean, I remember watching it. it, it when Liverpool went to Leeds a couple of months later and won in the FA Cup fourth round, I think what had happened in, the, in November made that even sweeter. Leeds and Liverpool really were becoming a, a, a kind of second-tier rivalry, I suppose, because there's no doubt about it. At this time, Manchester United and Arsenal were the two leading teams. But behind them, coming up on the rails, were definitely Leeds and Liverpool. Leeds had finished... Um, well, Leeds had pipped us to finish third the season before when really Liverpool flaked it, you know, didn't score in the last five games. But it was, you know, it was really starting to emerge as a, as a real rivalry between the two. And it was a very, you know, I didn't I didn't go to, to either game at Ellen Road that season, actually, but I remember watching particularly the 4-3 game. And it 2-0 up after 10 minutes or whatever it was, headers from Heskey and Ziga, sorry, Hippier and Ziga. I think we were all, not necessarily sitting back, but but thinking happy days, you know, this, this could end up being a, one of the biggest results of the season, and really, it was <clears throat> ironically, he's actually he's, he's he's been speaking out today, Christian Zieger, on um, his relationship with Gerard Hill. I'm sure we've got a piece on the Echo website on him, but I and I think a lot of Liverpool fans will really put the the, the seeds of the of this defeat at Leeds really was was sown by a very sloppy piece of defending from him midway through the first half when Liverpool were tuning up and relatively cruising, and he uh, very carelessly allowed a you know a, a back pass to be charged down. That gave Viduka the chance to bring Leeds back into the game. Um and, and all of a sudden Liverpool knew they were in a match. Um it, it, it was just it was a great game though. Yeah, Leeds equalised shortly after half time, great header from Viduka. And I think we thought Blimey we were really up against it here. And then and then Smeecher scored a terrific goal, um, spinning in the box, I think for a ball in from the left by Berger. And it was really set, turning into a classic. And it, it was just one of those days when everything smiled on Viduka. I mean, and, and it was it was a it was a cruel day for Liverpool because I think his the th- the third I mean, the, the fourth goal was offside. The winning goal was offside. Yeah, you know, with obviously no VAR in those days, but I think it was it was, it was a good yard off. But the the, the equalising goal, his hat trick goal, which was a great finish when he span a couple of times in the box. It was a very costly goal for Liverpool because nobody really realised at the time that Patrick Berger in trying to um, keep up with him or get a tackle in twisted his knee quite badly and didn't figure for the next few months. So it was um it that that really was a was a frustrating afternoon for Liverpool and, and really kind of showed how much work there was to be done 
if the season's objectives were to be achieved. And I suppose it was also a time, certainly in the Premier League, where clean sheets were really becoming a commodity in which Liverpool weren't trading after the uh, the one nil win over Leicester, 21st of October all the way. I think you have to go till the beginning of December. Liverpool didn't keep a league clean sheet and obviously four conceded in that one, two away at Tottenham, two away at Newcastle. And between those, the 4-1 win at Coventry, it was sort of where I suppose the league programme did then begin to get a, a stretch away from from Liverpool. Yeah, I mean, it, it was a tough month in terms of fixtures, certainly the away fixtures. I mean, the, the 4-1 at win home to Coventry um, was you know, the, the, uh, landmark David Gary McAllister scored his first Liverpool goal that day against his former side. David Thompson scored a great goal for them and had a little message for Gerard Houllier, um, who obviously had sold him. But the, you know, the three away games, you know, Leeds, obviously, as I say, were one of Liverpool's major rivals for the top spots. And Tottenham and Newcastle are never easy places to go. And, it, and you know, both of them were in reasonable shape at the time. You know, Newcastle's Bobby Robson had not long taken over. And I think certainly a season or two later, they were in the Champions League. Tottenham um, reached the FA Cup semis that year, I think, before losing to Arsenal. Um, so, it, you know, I think Liverpool was still fifth after defeat to Newcastle. But it, it just indicated that, um, you know, as I said before, it, it was it was one of these real stop-start seasons where you, just as you felt they'd turned a bit of a corner, there'd be another setback. But I think you have to say that says that speaks volumes for the players' mental strength and the manager's mental strength that, that he was instilling into them. That, in spite of the fact that you know there was no real consistency in terms of results and momentum. They were, at the same time, there wasn't any real negative momentum. They never really went on a bad run where they lost three or four on the bounce. When they did have disappointing results, they were able to pick themselves up and bounce back. But it was a, it was a real seesaw experience. But but an exciting one. You know, for, so many, you know, for quite a few of the preceding years, Liverpool really hadn't really been threatening any honours and really had been drifting. And, and you just felt that... I, I think supporters were, were were more accepting of some of these setbacks because you could see that it was a new team who had brought in young players, new players and young players, and was trying to gel them together. And there was an acceptance that that's going to take time, but there was just enough progress in those good moments to see what he was trying to do. And I think, by and large, you know, fans were were realistic about that and were prepared to accept that it it was going to be hit and miss. And obviously, you mentioned Gary McAllister. There. We know what sort of impact he was going to have at Goodison against Barcelona in the UEFA Cup final, as well, even in the FA Cup final, uh, of mm-hmm. course. And as you say, it, it was a surprise signing by many respects, yet that experience and that nous, I suppose you mentioned there, things maybe inconsistencies could have crept in, runs could have been gone on by Liverpool, but you had an old head there in the midfield who certainly helped a, a burgeoning Steven Gerrard uh, sort of come to the fore, but also was able to stitch things together in his own right. Yeah, and, and I think it probably would have been times like this um, that the real benefit of bringing someone like McAllister in became evident. You know, as, as autumn turned to winter, it was quite a few foreign players, some of whom were in the first seasons in England and how would they cope with it and someone of McAllister's now you know every, everyone who you, you know you, you speak to or you read or hear talking about that particular period at Anfield says obviously what he did on the pitch spoke for itself you know that incredible purple patch he had in the spring you know it's still immortalised in song you know and always will be by Liverpool fans 
But the, the I'm, I'm, I always thought at the time, you know, one of the surely one of the reasons why Julio wanted to bring him in was for the example he was going to set, not just on the pitch but off the pitch in training, how he how he carried himself, how he went about his business, how he you know his ability to make to to be to maintain an equilibrium and, and to be level headed through the slings and outra- the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune that, that a football season will throw at you. And and as you say, you know, this this month, perhaps as well as any, sums it up, you know. Big cut win over Lee, over Chelsea, a loss at Leeds, a big win in Europe, you know, a, a Europe, European win in Liberech, beating Coventry. Um, you know, halfway through they went through the month they went to Olympiacos and got a good two-two draw away in the third, first leg of the third round of the UEFA Cup, and just to be able to kind of handle that intensity, I think you know you, you can't you, you can you can only gain that by experience. And, and McAllister obviously had that. I mean, I, I personally thought Liverpool bought him 10 years too late. I thought I remember him when he was at Leicester scoring a couple of goals against Liverpool even before he went to Leeds and obviously had a big impact at Leeds helping them win the, the championship. But, um, you know, he, he, he will he will always be very much adored and, and revered by Liverpool fans. And I think it's, you know, until James Milner appeared, I don't think there was any question he was Liverpool's best free transfer of all time. And it's only because Milner's obviously helped win the two biggest prizes in the game that maybe he just slightly edges that accolade now. But, you know, any time Gary McAllister ever comes back to Anfield, he will always get an enormous ovation because, particularly as the season wore on, his 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 presence really became a really defining factor for the Reds, I think. And I suppose this month then, setting things up for... As you say there, the experiences and the trials and tribulations that Liverpool would need to learn from to go on through the rest of the season, booking a place in the last eight of the League Cup, as you say, they'd got a good draw away in the the third round of the UEFA Cup before obviously beating Olympiacos at Anfield and then taking the break from European competition to resume in the spring. And as you say, the Premier League may have got away, but I suppose those those big matches and big game occasions was something that Liverpool was certainly going to learn from. And and even if we sort of just wrap things up, even on that Leeds game, learning that when they went away to even hostile places, they need to make sure that they weren't going to give away sloppy goals and keep the back door shut. Well, absolutely, and and I think you can see the difference between what this Leeds game was on the fourth of November. Now, I think almost exactly five months later, um, yes, on the fifth of April, Liverpool went to the the, the camp now in Barcelona, my first European away game, and uh, I always remember after the match meeting my mate outside and whacked both of us almost simultaneously whacked in Liverpool about Jamie Carragher. Um, you know the defensive performance that he put in that night. Liverpool got a very valuable nil-nil draw against um, you know a talented Barcelona team with Rivaldo and uh, Koku and Giovanni. I think was was still around. He had that some Pepe Reina in goal. That that that's some top top players. But I think that showed that the the, the pragmatism that Julio had been trying to instill into his team was starting to take effect. They knew how to manage games better by this stage. I mean, maybe not necessarily in the final. <laughs> against Alves, which obviously we'll get onto in a few months' time, but um, I, I, it, it wasn't one for the purists that night in Barcelona. The, the, I do remember the, the Catalan press. I think even was it Frank de Boer. It, it was the manager, one of the de Boer brothers, who, who was manager at the time, was very critical about the way Liverpool performed. But at the end of the day, this wasn't a, this, this wasn't an all concrete Liverpool team. This was a young Liverpool team finding their feet again in Europe. And as far as I was concerned, the end justified the means. If you're still playing like that five years down the line, 
then maybe there's an issue. But, you know, at the end, at the end of the day, this Liverpool team scored, what I say, 127 goals that, that, that year? That's the figure I've got on my head. Um, and so, yeah, so they can't have been that defensive to win three cups and finish third in the league. It was a case of horses for courses. And I think this, you know, this, this November period, you know, had its bleak moments for Liverpool, but also showed the kind of green shoots of recovery that was starting to take hold. Who, you know, who, they, but by this, who laid, who laid being sole charge for two years by this point? It was, it was mid November 1980 to go over. And obviously, he had a fair bit of Deadwood to get out and a fair new place to bring in. But things were just starting to kind of mould together. But as we'll get on to in December, there was still plenty of plenty of more ups and downs. And it, it was a roller coaster season without any any question at all. But I think that's one that's one of the reasons why it's so well remembered because that contrast between the highs and the lows. Yeah, the clean sheets would return in December. And as you say, and allude to big games and roller coaster of emotions, a visit to Old Trafford, the visit of Arsenal to Anfield to come as well. All of that to look ahead to in December's uh, look back on the treble winning season. 20 years on here on the Blood Red channel. But from myself, Guy Clark and Dan Kay, thanks for joining us to look back on the November sequence for Liverpool during that time through to the quarterfinals of the League Cup where they'd face Fulham and halfway through their UEFA Cup third round tie with Olympiacos. But from myself, Guy Clark and Dan Kay, thanks for joining us here on Blood Red. It's bye for now. You've been listening to the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo.